Sometimes people ask me if I'm nervous when I'm speaking up here. And, you know, I'm not nervous anymore about speaking itself, about speaking in front of a bunch of people, although I'm sure I have my number limit. (laughs) But sometimes I'm nervous about what it is I have to say, about the content, you know, of what I might share. Today is one of those days for me. We're exploring the theme of death in October, this huge, important reality that's part of life. And I want so much to find the right words to say for each one of you that somehow makes it easier, or better, or, or more understandable, or more acceptable, more tolerable. Words that make it make sense. I often feel exactly this way when I'm talking with somebody who is in deep grief and loss. I wish, I think, if I just could find the right words except there are no words like that. As a clergy person, I have a somewhat unique vantage point on death and grief and loss. I certainly get to be around it a little bit more, maybe, than the average person. And I'm always thankful for the time I spend as a hospital chaplain and training the opportunity to be around death on a regular basis so that at least some of the scariness of it, you know, the edge of that starts to come off. But at times when people are facing death or when they have lost someone they love, it's those times as a clergy person when I feel both most necessary, most needed, and also most deeply inadequate, right at the same time. Because at those times, there is nothing really that is adequate, you know? Like many of you, I think, I wonder how it would feel, how different it might be if I were a clergy person in a different tradition, a clergy person in a more traditionally religious setting, Some of you commented in the last couple of weeks about what death means to you on those sheets that we had out up in the lobby. And as you've seen, Shirley Storms, who has done our artwork the last two months, has has incorporated a number of your words into this piece of art she's created. And, And from those words and also from what you've told me over the weeks in preparation for this and just over the years, I know some of you wonder, too, What would death feel like? What would grief feel like if I were in a different religious setting? If this is how you phrase it sometimes, it's how I phrase it sometimes. That this is a time when we we almost wish we could believe. 
we almost wish we could believe. Now, I want to note, even while I say that, that actually in this room, people believe a lot of different things about death, about life, and about what happens after we die. I've had enough conversations with folks at Wes in different settings to know that some of you believe in reincarnation, in a kind of cycle. I know that some of you believe in heaven in a relatively traditional sense of the word. I know that some of you believe in different planes of existence that you're not quite sure what they are, but in energy somewhere. And so I want to just note that. I want to honor the diversity that's represented in this room always. It's so easy for us, you know, when we come in and feel at home in a place to imagine that feeling at home means that the person near us thinks exactly the same thing we do. And of course, that's not ever really true. But, but many of you, many of us, believe what the child in our story this morning believes, as Jasper told so beautifully. Believes that when you die, you're in the ground. You become part of the earth. Or maybe we believe what the father believes, you know, the way he said it, that we just don't know too much about it. What we do know is what we can see right here. And so from what I've seen and heard from some of you, you, you wonder, you imagine, I wonder whether things might be different, whether the world might feel more comforting if I could believe something different than that, if I could feel some surety about something different. So, of course, then, you know, I wonder, well, what, what, what would I believe? What would we believe in a, in a traditional religious setting? And, and the answer there is actually a lot of things, too. <laughs> you know, the diversity in this room. Well, there's diversity in any church and synagogue and mosque that you might walk into. But, of course, there are also some ideas that are kind of central to different religious traditions. The idea of an afterlife, of what happens after death, is not much of a big deal in Judaism. There are some different mentions of it in the Torah and the Hebrew Bible. Some conversation about resurrection in terms of a judgment day, you know, a single day when all will be judged. But there isn't one clear agreed-upon view. There's a lot of opinions. I wonder sometimes, actually, when I think about ethical culture's relationship to other religious traditions, of course, Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, had originally studied to be a rabbi, so there's a connection there. But I think anyway, one of the reasons that we sometimes feel a little closer to Judaism is the, the plethora of opinions that the, that the tradition not only allows but encourages, right? That great rabbinic tradition of, you know, dissenting views. I found a quote from that tradition, the rabbinic tradition from Rabbi Yaakov, who said, better one hour in repentance and good deeds in this world than all the life in the world to come. And in a lot of ways, I think that sums up many people's interactions with Judaism. The the emphasis really is here on our actions now. I looked a little bit at the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. You might remember that Buddhism kind of came up out of Hinduism, and so there's some uh, relationship there. 
Um, and I will say that, that that's a tradition, those traditions are not ones that I studied in seminary, so I know a little bit less about them. But as you might know from even a popular understanding of Hinduism and, um, and Buddhism as well, there's a sense of that cycle of life of reincarnation, you know, the idea of being reincarnated uh, as a different being dependent on how you acted in this life. One of the things I always think is interesting is that at least in some understandings and conceptions, that, that the real goal is actually release from that cycle. <laughs> you know, that the, that the rebirth that's experienced again and again, if we live the best possible life, we're released from the cycle of rebirth, and we don't have to do it again. Within Islam, there's that sense of uh, the judgment day that we find in all of the Abrahamic faiths, right, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the idea of one day at the end of time when all are judged and go to one place or the other. And, of course, you see that in Christianity as well, the idea of a day of resurrection. There's actually, though, kind of two understandings within Christianity that, um, that, that in some ways um, battle with each other, I think, a little bit in our consciousness. One is that idea of what... What, what I remember being heard, being told in, in seminary was that great good morning, that one day of judgment, of resurrection, when people uh, all are judged. And until then, there's nothing, right? It's waiting until that day. But then we have another understanding within Christian theology, particularly within popular Christian theology. So sort of w- what you might hear many of your Christian friends or how you might have been taught growing up, the idea that you, that you um, get to go to heaven maybe right after you die, you know, the, the very moment there's a resurrection of your soul that's available. And of course, in, in many Christian traditions, certainly historically, there is a, a choice of where you go right? That choice, the idea of whether there's a choice or not, the, um, the heaven or hell dichotomy, that was a key point in the heresy originally of universalism, which said it can't possibly be right that a, that a God that's loving would split people up that way forever and ever. That can't possibly be right. So that original heresy of universalism back in the early 19th century said, no, everybody ultimately will be reconciled. There's no, uh, there's no hell. There's no other option. It's all reconciliation. I want to spend just a little bit more time here in that, in that Christian understanding because I think, you know, it's, it's often when we talk about, well, what if we could believe something else? Often that's the thing that we imagine believing. It's, the, it's of course, the foundation within most of American culture the Christian understanding of either resurrection at a judgment day or more, more usually the idea of going to heaven immediately after you die. And I want to say a little bit more because there's a, there's a piece there that I think, I think also can cause great pain, not just for those of us who are in non-traditional religious and philosophical movements, but within the Christian community as well. I hear, and you can see lists of them, actually. If you Google what not to say to someone who's lost a loved one, you can actually get a really wonderful list. There's, a, there's some great resources on the Internet of what not to say. And I think sometimes it's when we've heard those not to say comments 
that we ourselves find that we're at odds with, with what we imagine is Christian theology, right? So, you know, the idea that God would never give you more than you can handle. Bullshit. <laughs> the idea that, that God calls people to God's self, you know, because God wants another angel in heaven. Not any God that I would want to know. And so what I want to tell you about those things, what I think it's important for us to know in this community is that they're on the what-not-to-say list for a reason. They're not. You know, as a student who went to a Christian seminary and was taught mostly among people preparing to be Christian pastors, I want you to know that that's not how Christian pastors are taught to speak to their flock. They have the what-not-to-say list as well. To me, those things are bad theology. They're wrong theology. They're not how I hear my Christian friends and Christian colleagues talking to their congregations. And so, and I know, I mean, I know that some of you have probably heard those things from Christian pastors. I've heard those stories, and you know, they break my heart. They break my heart because of the disservice that they do to the person who hears it, but also because of the disservice that it does to the, the good the good theology that I think is behind the idea, the comfort that someone hopes to bring and doesn't. So I just, I want you to know that, I guess, that that's, that's not how my Christian seminary taught. So what do we believe in ethical culture about death? What do we do with all of it? Kate Lovelady, my colleague who serves as a leader in the St. Louis Ethical Society, actually wrote an article, which I commend to you. You can find it online in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch um, about what humanists think about death. And, uh, and, and she says many of the same things that I've said. You know, people have a diversity of opinion. That's true. And, you know, so she tries to focus on what it is that we're sure about as a community, as a people. And it's, it's kind of a long quote, but frankly, I can't say it any better myself, so I'll just read it to you. What do we believe? One is physical. We are made of elements that have existed since the Big Bang, star stuff, as the remake of Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, has recently reminded us, she writes. After our death, all those elements will return to the earth, whether as flesh or ashes, to be broken down and mixed up with other elements and eventually recycled into new life in a variety of ways. She goes on, Our second shared understanding about death is personal. We live on through the influence that our personality and our deeds have made in the life of humanity. We live in memories, in art and music, in discoveries, in physical objects and spaces we created, in the ideas and emotions we inspired. And all those things will continue to be developed in turn by other people. I love the way she said that. I think it's so clear and so true. And you can hear it, I think, in our memorial services here. 
Dr. Um, Wald, Valdemar Argau, a Unitarian minister in the 20th century, said it in another also beautiful way. We believe, he wrote, in the immortality of ideas, ideals, and values. We believe in the immortality of personal influence by which we live on in the lives of other persons and shape this world to be a fairer dream. Thank you, children, for singing as you go by our window. (laughs) Our children, as they explore death, one of the things that they're doing is... uh, They're with Susan Runner right now. They're taking a tour of our building and our grounds, looking at some of the memorials that we've put together here for people we've lost in this community. But they're still high energy while they do it. (laughs) I want to note here, somewhere in the middle of talking about all of this, the difference, you know, between, between the concept of facing our own death and all of the ideas and worries and fears that surround that, and grieving for those who have died, those we have lost. Because I think they're, they're really unique experiences. They're different from each other. And what we need at those times is different. My experience with people who are close to death is that, is that at a certain point... You know, it's not a terrible thing to die when your body is ready. One of the people who wrote, and I don't know if it made it on Shirley's piece, but but said something along the lines of, as I get older and older, it sounds more and more relaxing. (laughs) Death. And I think there's something there. You know, there's a beautiful article online in The Guardian, which is a London newspaper by Diana Athill, who's in her early 90s. And, uh, and she, she writes in this article about death as a part of life. It's actually called, in kind of typical British style, um, it's silly to be afraid of death. <laughs> and she's, she's in her early 90s and speaking about what it means to her and about the freedom that has come at her age being able to talk with other folks in the place where she lives, in the community where she lives, about death in a practical and inevitable way. What it means as a, as a person having lived the life she has lived to face death now. Death as a part of life, inevitable, making it somehow more precious. Now, that doesn't entirely erase the idea of some sort of anxiety we might feel ourselves about what happens to us after we die. I have a family friend who's um, sort of essentially a secular Jew, I would say, um, emphasis on the secular, except around food items, obviously. And, um, and she says that she, you know, tries to, like, every once in a while, just throw a prayer out to any god she hears about to cover her bases. (laughs) And I think there's, you know, okay. I actually love a quote attributed to Marcus Aurelius. I found out in researching it for this platform that he didn't really say anything like this. It was sort of a little bit like this. But, um, but whether he said it or not, it's how I feel. Here's the way the quotes come down to us now. Live a good life. If there are gods and they are just, then they will not care how devout you have been, but will welcome you based on the virtues you have lived by. If there are gods but unjust, then you should not want to worship them. (laughs) 
If there are no gods, then you will be gone, but you will have lived a noble life that will live on in the memories of your loved ones. That feels enough of a cover the bases to me as I think about my own death and what might happen after. I like, to what Forrest Church, a Unitarian Universalist minister, said, which was essentially, it seems like such a surprise that we're here in the first place. If I'm surprised again later, great. <laughs> I might be paraphrasing a little bit. We'll talk more, actually, about our own experience with death, our own deaths, on October 19th. And really, we'll talk about the kind of life that the knowledge of the surety of death can inspire in us, about the preciousness, you know, that death brings to life. I think, though, that it's that awareness of the preciousness that we have that death might inspire in us for ourselves that adds so deeply to our sadness when we lose someone that we love. Because we do know how wonderful life is, how good it is to be alive on balance. When I was five, my Nana died. And, um, and you know, I think I, I did pretty well with it, as my parents expected. And, um, and then my mother, uh, who, as you might know, is a child developmental psychologist, so kind of on the lookout, my mother noticed that, um, that when Mr. Rogers came on, uh, at a certain point in the show, I would run up really angry and shut the TV off and run away. I don't, I don't want to watch that show anymore, I would say. And it took her a little while to figure out. I don't know how many of you remember Mr. Rogers and the song that he used to sing. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. But Nana doesn't get that anymore, I told her. And there at the heart of it is some of our grief. Not just that we don't get to be with the person that we love and miss, but that they don't get to be alive anymore. The goodness of that. And there we are then with grief. There's a poem I love by Nancy Schaefer called Offering for Grief. Look, I have made this bowl for you, this large, dark blue one with lilies etched across the bottom around the sides. I have cleaned this box for you, lined it in soft brown wool, have set it here by the stove, warm. You could lie under the mulberry tree at the edge of the garden, wait in the grass for lace wings and evening, or lie on the bed, light falling near, sit on the bureau. What I mean to say is, I will make a place for you. Offering for grief. We are a people, I think, who make a place for grief. 
who say it is allowed in. We know this about ourselves, actually. I, I was so struck both in, the, in, the, in the, what people wrote on the paper, and then I asked the board at one of the, their board meetings to start by thinking a little bit about death and what it means to them. And there's such resonance with what people said. We are the people who show up, someone said. When someone loses someone and they have a memorial service here, we come. We don't stay away because it's too hard. We don't say it's all right when it's not. Look, grief, we have a place for you here. We speak to the realness, someone said. We are a people who honor those we've lost with our sadness. And we honor those who are grieving with our deep and honest sympathy. Those harmful phrases that we talked about earlier, one of the ways in which they hurt, I think, is that they deny the reality of that loss. They deny the fullness of the grief that we hold. And this is a place where we have a space for grief. I like the way the father said it in the story, actually. You know, the little girl said, I I don't like it that Barney is dead. And the father said, well, why should you? It's sad. Now, we might find in that sadness and in that grief, we might find laughter in the midst of it. We might find moments of opening, of grace. We might find moving forward. But we don't have to find it on anyone's timetable except our own. We are a community where there is space for grief. Other traditions, of course, provide this too. I think about the Jewish custom of the mourner's kaddish, the moment in the service every Saturday where if you are mourning someone in that first year of mourning, you stand and have a special prayer. The Brooklyn Ethical Society actually has incorporated that into their own meetings. They have a mourner's moment when they meet together. But the truth is any community, any religious community, even those who have understandings of what happens after death that might be very different from yours or from mine, every community creates a space for grief in that way. A container. Here, I made this bowl for you. In this community, I think because of our grounding in relationship, our grounding in this moment, in the here and now that we can see and touch, our grounding in each other, I think we allow grief, I hope, I hope we allow grief especially fully here. I think about our Remembrance Day every year at the end of October. Here we know, in the quiet of that ceremony, in the quiet times we take in memorial services, we know there are no words that make death or grief any easier.
it's a relief in some ways. You don't have to think about finding just the right word. Don't bother. There's no, no words there. But if you look around, there are people here that make it possible to bear, I think. Just possible. I still wish (laughs) that I had the words to make it better. (laughs) I really do. What I have instead are the truths that I know. For myself, at least, death doesn't feel scary. It's that prospect of not living, not being here. And the same when I think of ones that I love. I'm not scared for them to die exactly, but I'm scared for when they won't be here anymore. And in the end, that does remind me of the sweetness of life, the preciousness of it, the amazingness of it, the surprise, and the mystery. We call our memorial services a celebration of life. I never want to forget the part that is just mourning, just grief, and just lament, because it's there. But the term celebration feels right to me, too. I think that idea, the celebration of life, it's our way of making sure that death, as natural and as ultimately inevitable as it is, that it doesn't get the final say.